Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. As Canada sets out to cut its greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2050, many people have asked a really simple question, which is how exactly are we gonna do this now? But for the first time, we have a plan. This Tuesday, the federal government laid out what the country has to do by 2030 to cut our emissions 40% from what they were in 2005. It's the first time we've ever looked sector by sector, year by year, and made a plan to cut emissions. I'm Gabe Friedman, and you're listening to a special bonus episode of Down to Business, and I've got a great lineup of guests to talk about this plan and what it means for the economy and the country. As always, the interviews are edited for clarity and brevity. I'll start with the oil and gas sector, the biggest source of emissions in Canada. The plan says the oil and gas sector has to reduce emissions by 31%. That's less than the 40% that the whole country is aiming for. But still, I needed to ask, is even a 31% reduction realistic? It, it really depends on how pragmatic the federal government is, what, what tools are available. It, there's no question it is ambitious. That's Tristan Goodman, president of the Explorers and Producers Association of Canada. That's a national lobby group representing 140 of Canada's oil and gas entrepreneurs problem we always have in the oil and gas business is we continue actually on a per unit basis to reduce the emissions. I mean, we're spending huge billions of dollars every year. The problem is the product is still in demand. Um, and according to all credible international sources like the International Energy Agency or the IMF or World Bank, it's going to be in demand for quite a while to come. So the key is, how do you continue to reduce that emission through clean technology application? But it is ambitious. There's no question. It's an interesting way to frame it. But he is right that demand for oil and gas continues to grow. So again, I just wanted to know, is this reduction even achievable? They're going to need many billions of dollars. A lot of that will be private funding that comes into the sector um, through clean technology and elsewhere, but something like the CCOS tax credit. He was talking about a tax credit, also sometimes called carbon capture storage or the acronym CCUS. Basically, this is technology that catches CO2 and other greenhouse gases so it can be buried underground rather than released up into the atmosphere. And the idea of that tax credit is that if oil producers invest in this technology, then they should be able to write off that money. And it's controversial, as we'll hear in a minute. Does anyone know for sure if the federal government is going to introduce that tax credit? I certainly wouldn't know. I mean, I think it's um, the federal government has continued to speak about um, the CCUS tax credit. Um, so, yeah, I have no I don't work for the federal government, so I can't comment. But I think it's clear they are fairly serious about that. And we certainly hope I mean, I would hope to see that in the next federal budget. But no, I don't have any insider knowledge or I couldn't betray anyone's confidence because I wouldn't know. Here's how it would work. 
it would be something like a uh, sort of a 50% or some number of the amount of capital you expended on a CCUS storage facility, as an example, could be deducted from a taxation standpoint. Again, I said this is controversial because some people think taxpayers shouldn't help the oil and gas sector, given that right now they're reaping the benefit of basically record high oil prices, billions of dollars in profits, and giving out billions of dollars in dividends to their shareholders. I spoke to Julia Levin about this issue. She's a senior program manager for Environmental Defense, a nonprofit, and she's a pretty staunch critic of the oil and gas industry. Um, there's just there's a pattern in Canada where we ask oil and gas to do less than any of sector of the economy, and then we pay them for the things that we're asking them to do. She told me that the real issue is that these emissions that we're talking about capturing they're really not most of the emissions. These are just the emissions that are produced when you dig up or extract or produce oil and gas. It doesn't include the emissions that are released when you burn oil and gas in a car or when you burn it some other way. And the burning part, that's where most of the emissions come from. You know, when we talk about the oil and gas sector, we're ignoring downstream emissions. So this is a sector where 80% of the emissions are not accounted for. They happen downstream. That's different than any other sector. So we have to be conscious of that in, in how we plan for this sector. We know that the only way to avoid catastrophic climate change is to wind down the production of oil and gas this decade. And so we need a plan that puts us on a path to have a fair transition off of oil and gas, both its production and its use. But one thing that stood out for me in this plan is it actually allows for an increase or is modeling an increase in production from oil and gas. No, that's not even in line with what the International Energy Agency has said is compatible with 1.5 degrees, with limiting global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees. They've said no expansion is allowable under that pathway. And yet here we are in the most ambitious climate plan our government has shown us to date, and they're still allowing for irresponsible growth in the production of oil and gas. So that gives you a sense of how heated and where the arguments are around Canada's oil and gas sector's emissions. But the next biggest source of emissions is transportation. The federal government is envisioning a rapid transition to electric vehicles, also known as ZEVs, which stands for zero emission vehicles. To the automaker, this plan says basically no more messing around. We're mandating, but by 2030, 60% of all new cars that you sell have to be zero emission vehicles. Yeah, we're, uh, we're very concerned. Um, the government has confirmed that they're going to move ahead with uh, a sales mandate, so effectively regulating the kinds of vehicles Canadians can buy. That was Brian Kingston, president of the Canadian Vehicles Manufacturers Association, a lobby group for automakers. The issue isn't whether or not automakers can build the vehicles, it's whether or not people will buy the vehicles. <laughs> That's the challenge. You can't achieve higher ZEV adoption levels without much stronger consumer incentives and charging infrastructure. Basically, what he said is, we know how to make these cars, but we have to invest in chargers. We have to invest in electricity infrastructure. We have to help the automakers create price parity until they fully transitioned to making EVs. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this is at the end of the day, it's, this is a consumer's decision and they're going to buy the vehicle that can do all the things they need it to do you know, get groceries, go to soccer practice, and that will fit their budget. And if it, if it doesn't check one of those boxes, trying to convince people to buy a vehicle because, well, this is, you know, the government wants you to, to buy an EV to help us hit our 
2030 ERP, that's not a compelling uh, argument for, for a consumer. So you're going to have to put in place those supports to make this all happen. And one final point, just look at the jurisdictions that are actually doing this right. Norway and Iceland. No ZAD mandates. They're not regulating what people can buy. They focused exclusively and aggressively on building out charging infrastructure, providing an overwhelming suite of incentives, and not just putting money on the hood of a car, but tax reductions, access to free municipal parking, access to high occupancy lanes, you name it, they do it. So that as a consumer, it you go to the lot and the decision is just so obvious that you should buy uh, an EV. And then on top of that, they've done a huge amount on education. So when I look at best case examples around the world, to me, that's where they're, they're doing it right. And both countries, uh, Norway is now 75%, Iceland's approaching 50%. We should be copying those types of approaches. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Next up is heavy industry. That means steel, cement, aluminum, chemicals. Here, actually, people said the federal government has already been investing to help steel companies get off metallurgical coal and switch to less carbon-intensive electric arc furnaces. And there's already been a lot of work done. In aluminum, our smelters are hooked up to hydroelectricity, and they've been investing in carbon reduction methods. So I asked Jean Samard, president of the Aluminum Association of Canada, a lobby group, how much work industry had left to do, how much they had done already. When you look at the way we operate, which is more what we call our industrial process, well, historically, it was a highly emitting process because we are uh, using carbon in the process. uh, And uh, some of those emissions were a matter more of management of the process and also some, and through the past 20 years, through a huge effort in modernization, In fact, we invested, I think, close to $13 billion over a period of about 15 years to modernize uh, our smelters, get the old technology out, which we used to call the Soderberg technology, and uh, with what we used to replace it, and also operational efficiency, we were able to get rid of all emissions down to what we call the technological threshold, which means that we cannot lower any further our uh, process emissions because it is the limit of what is required to generate aluminium. So the next step is a game changer technology. And that's what we're working on. Basically, Samar told me, aluminum's on track. And they got this game-changing technology that's coming out in a few years. It's going to help things even more. We're not all born equal uh, in the game today. Why? Because we started doing our homework many, many years ago. And we reached a level of where we are uh, some years ago, whereas some other sectors, for all sorts of considerations, have a long way to go. They're still in the long haul on this game. And uh, <clears throat> so it means that, it's ironically, it's tougher for us to get to the next step because we need a game-changing technology that will replace the way, that will change the way we've been producing aluminium 
all around the world for the past 100 years. And for the other guys that are not at that level yet, well, there's a lot of things that they can still do at a lower cost and with available existing technologies. So he says, if you haven't reduced emissions yet, there's probably low-hanging fruit. Those three sectors that I just mentioned, oil and gas, transportation, and heavy industry, together account for 62% of all of Canada's emissions, and electricity accounts for another 8%. Have you ever wondered what phasing out coal would mean for Canada? By 2030, electricity, which is 8% of the total, is set to plummet by 77% under this plan. Richard Carlson, Director of Energy Policy at Pollution Probe, a nonprofit, explained electricity is key to this whole plan. Right now, electricity provides about 20% of our energy consumption. Under most models, including the ones done internationally, you're looking at somewhere in between 40 to 60% of energy consumption coming from electricity in a net zero future. That will require massive investments in new infrastructure. And that's true not just on the wider investment in terms of new wind turbines, new solar panels, new low emitting plants, storage, what have you, but also in the wires. If you, even if you look at, for example, the potential to have 100% of new light duty vehicles to be electric in 2035, those have to be charged up. And that's going to require new infrastructure in cities and urban areas and in neighborhoods in order to allow that charging to happen. That's going to require a lot of investment. As you phase out things like gasoline, coal power plants, electricity gets more important, basically. So maybe one takeaway, this transition is going to cost a lot of money. I haven't been going through all the money that the federal government is committing to this, but suffice to say, their plan includes $9.1 billion in funding to help this transition. And if you've been doing the math so far, you'll remember that I've only covered about 70% of our emissions. The rest come from buildings, agriculture, waste, and other stuff. And the federal government lays out in detail what it expects from each of these, how they're going to reduce emissions by 2030. You can check this report out online. I'll drop a link in the web version to this podcast to the government's plan. Simon Dyer, Deputy Executive Director of the Pembina Institute, told me that the most remarkable aspect of this plan is just that this is the first time that our government has released such a detailed plan to cut emissions. The winners are Canadians. After 1990, we've had many climate plans where we haven't seen the details or the follow-through in terms of regulation that gets us on the track to reducing emissions. And what's really significant about this plan is it's the first real plan that uh, seems to have the detailed analysis to show how we're going to get to 40% lower emissions below 2005 levels by 2030. And he pointed out that the federal government was behind it, not the provincial governments. I think it is a bit unfortunate that there is not more attention on other levels of government in terms of their emission reductions plan, right? You know, it's like, uh, you know, we have our 10 uh, provinces and territories. Every one of those should be demonstrating how they're contributing to the national goal of reducing emissions by 40%, right? It's a shared responsibility and our provinces have significant responsibility and ability to reduce emissions, but we need the provinces to be willing partners in reducing emissions. And I don't see the same level of leadership at the provincial level. Basically, whatever you think about the plan, it's a plan which is more than we've had up until now. So we can celebrate that. There are proposals to lock in a carbon price in case there's an election and a change in government creates a change in policy. Like I said, it's a 231 page document plus a long attic. It's comprehensive and maybe some holes, but it's a start. And I hope you learned something. 
That's our show for this week. Thank you for listening. I want to give a huge thank you to the guests who appeared on the show. Tristan Goodman, president of the Explorers and Producers Association of Canada. Julia Levin, senior climate and energy program manager at Environmental Defense. Brian Kingston, president of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association. Richard Carlson, director of energy policy at Pollution Probe. Jean Simard, president of the Aluminum Association of Canada and Simon Dyer, Deputy Executive Director of the Pembina Institute. Thanks to the team behind this show. Bryce Hall composed and performed the original music and produced this show. Pamela Heaven, Victoria Wells, and Noella Ovid provided web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman. I'll be back next week with a regular episode, but until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.